can speculate all we want as to what were the inner depths that moved Grant in this way, um, but you know we can't even explain that kind of behavior within ourselves when we're attentive to certain things and not to others. I think you're skirting around the fact that both Grant was a loser, he was a failure uh, in everything he did except the wartime, and, and it was only he was only a great general, considered a great general with quotation marks, because he had many more men, and people believe that today. What if I told you that one of the most successful American generals in history was also an inept businessman who, in civilian life, got screwed over and over again? Or that the guy who did more than anyone in the federal government to fight KKK terrorism during Reconstruction after the Civil War also married into a slaveholding family and for a time in his life managed enslaved people. As a student, this person earned average grades in most subjects. After he died, the memoirs he published revealed him to be one of the most incredible natural prose stylists this country has ever produced. Ulysses S. Grant won brilliant battles during the American Civil War and was elected for two terms as president. For all that, he was an unlucky loser, a slight man who couldn't hold his liquor and the easiest mark east or west of the Mississippi. You might have heard about Unconditional Surrender Grant, the man who masterminded the capture of Vicksburg, and the head of the Grand Army of the Republic who orchestrated victory over the Confederacy, and in doing so helped bring about the end of the institution of slavery. This podcast is about the man who came before the Civil War hero and the bizarre offbeat path he walked in the first chapters of life. This episode in particular falls under that category, yes, but here I'm also going to get into the ways that we remember the man today. Ulysses Grant died on July 23rd, 1885. A few days later, the St. Louis Republican newspaper published an interview with a woman named Mary Robinson who Grant's wife's family had previously enslaved. She lived and worked with the Grants between 1854 and 59, the years right before the Civil War breaks out. She went on at length about Ulysses and his wife, Julia, who she calls Mrs. Grant, and recalls the following episode, which takes place sometime during her stay with them. Now, Many historians I've spoken to encourage me to take this with a grain of salt, so let's take it with a grain of salt. But at the same time, this interview is revealing. Future President Grant has resigned from his post in the Army. He's supporting three or four kids along with his wife, Julia, and is making a living as a fairly unsuccessful farmer. So here's Mary Robinson, quote, one day, I will never forget the circumstances. Mrs. Grant was sitting in a large rocking chair talking to some of her relatives about family matters. She referred to the financial embarrassment of her husband and then added, but we will not always be in this condition. Wait until Duddy, meaning Grant, becomes president. I dreamed last night he had been elected. 
The rest all laughed. They looked upon it as a capital joke. End quote. In a way, this podcast is a retelling of that joke. Because within 15 years or so of these events, Grant would be elected president. Ulysses Grant's life can be partially understood as a series of contradictions, ironies, and juxtapositions. Here are a few. His father and his uncle were Ohio abolitionists, and Grant married the daughter of a Missouri planter who enslaved dozens of people. He showed an unnatural affinity for animals and a knowledge and ability with horses from a very young age. His father operated a tannery which made leather out of the hides of horses and cows. That tannery was across the street from his bedroom window, and the smell always made him sick. That's not the recipe for a scarring childhood experience I don't know what is. Throughout Grant's life, he could never eat meat that was rare or swimming in its juices because it would turn his stomach. He needed everything to be charred black. Ulysses entered the world of business at age eight, helping run his father's livery service that transported people with horse and train to and from Cincinnati, which is near Georgetown, where they were living at the time. He proved to be more suitable in this role than in most other civilian positions that he held. In business, he could never believe his partners or clients had anything but his own best intentions in mind. He got duped time and time again. He continued to get duped right up until the final years of his life when a young business partner stole millions, and that's millions not adjusted for inflation, millions in Gilded Age American dollars from Ulysses and many members of his family. His greatest success as a businessman came after his death when the memoirs he completed just a few weeks before he died sold over half a million copies and those profits helped restore the Grant family to financial security. Allegations of drunkenness and alcohol abuse followed him his entire life. Historians today continue to debate the veracity of these allegations. Ulysses was a slight man who averaged about 130 pounds for most of his military life, and it seems more likely that he struggled to hold his liquor in hard-drinking American military society. His ability to read enemy generals often gave him the edge in battle, but his inability to read his quote-unquote friends around him allowed corruption to spread throughout his army headquarters and later his presidential administration and cabinet. He voiced few opinions about the institution of slavery during his early life. As I mentioned before, he managed enslaved people and even for a brief time owned a man named William Jones. He manumitted or freed Jones during a time when he was near his poorest and could have sold him for more than what he would have made in a year. But during the Civil War, he grew adamant and militant about the importance of civil rights. Still, during the Vicksburg campaign, he issued a command to expel all Jews from his military jurisdiction. In the White House, his policy towards indigenous Americans has been described as cultural genocide. Nevertheless, he made it his mission to carry through Lincoln's vision when he assumed presidency and fighting the KKK became his landmark achievement.
Hello and welcome to Ulysses Under Fire, a podcast about the stories you might not have heard about the life of Ulysses S. Grant, Civil War General and 18th President of the United States. My name is Henry Kronk. Thanks so much for listening. I want to highlight here that I am totally not a historian. I have spoken with many historians to produce this series, but I am operating here as a journalist. So April 27th, 2022, the day this episode went live, marks Ulysses Grant's 200th birthday. As I record this, events have occurred and are planned throughout the year to commemorate the anniversary. The Grant Monument Association and others dedicated to Grant's memory are lobbying Congress to pass the Ulysses S. Grant Bicentennial Recognition Act, which seeks to appoint Grant as the General of the Armies of the United States, which is our country's highest rank. The same honor was given to George Washington during the American Bicentennial in 1976. At the same time, there is a lot of pushback against Grant right now. Uh, Over the past five years, one Grant monument has been taken down in San Francisco, and there has been discussion of removing others. Beginning during his own lifetime and lasting to today, Americans have constantly reevaluated Ulysses Grant. After he left the White House, he was arguably the most famous living American. Many contemporaries ranked him alongside Lincoln and Washington as the greatest American presidents. Just 40 or 50 years later, he was considered by the public to be among the worst. Since the year 2000 or so, the public perception of Grant has risen dramatically. But in recent years, his record of enslavement and indigenous American policy has received new scrutiny. UCLA professor emeritus Joan Waugh calls these the memory wars. It's been a long journey through history, through my own research, and it never ends. I, I can't believe that uh, it's even gotten hotter. Here, Professor Waugh is talking about the monuments. In the summer of 2017, there was a campaign to potentially remove the uh, tomb of Ulysses S. Grant from Riverside Park in New York due to the previously mentioned uh, anti-Semitic orders he gave during the Civil War. Then on Juneteenth, uh, June 19th, 2020, protesters in San Francisco tore down a bust of Ulysses Grant in Golden Gate Park. Grant is complicated, and so is the way we remember him. This conflict over monuments is just the latest episode in that war over memory. How do you assess or reassess the pushback on the revisionism of, once again, of American history and Civil War history in light of Dylan Roof in, in Charleston in 2015 or the riot attack in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, and George Floyd, of course. Now, those are just three incidents that we know very well that sparked a huge protest against Civil War statues, Civil War memory, uh, at least certain interpretations, but it was, it was, I can assure you, it was ongoing well before this. At his funeral, and at the time, say, of the dedication, the building and the dedication of his monument, he was a widely 
popular figure, much honored, much appreciated. It wasn't the case really until the, 19, the late 1920s and 30s where the, the generation of soldiers who fought on the side of the North during the Civil War began to die off in great numbers. When we see in the 30s, for example, Douglas Southall Freeman writing a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Robert E. Lee and to great acclaim. And you see the rise of Robert E. Lee sort of paired with Abraham Lincoln as the two major figures of the Civil War. It's just fascinating to trace how this happened, how somebody who in many ways today, we still look as, as an admirable person doing the kinds of things, putting into place the kind of policies, both as Lieutenant General Commander of the Union Armies um, and also as President of the United States in terms of civil rights and liberties that we would approve of how you find this person just, just uh, uh, under fire once again. He lost the position of hero in the by the 1930s and 40s and to some extent the late 20s as well. And that was, and that was an outgrowth of the reaction by intellectuals against the slaughter of World War I. And Grant appeared really his reputation as a butcher forever enshrined in the historical literature from that era and, and to some extent going forward. I, I don't think you can deny recently from the late 20th to the 21st century and certainly one of your sources for this program that you're doing is Brooke Simpson, who was really a major figure in bringing Grant to a more favorable light but he had nowhere to go but up. So he's, he's the upswing is portraying him as he should be as an uncommon common man, I suppose having certain things in common with Abraham Lincoln, as portraying him as a sol soldier statesman, uh, has portraying him, uh, as portraying him as somebody who helped to save the union, a major figure, followed in Abraham Lincoln's footsteps and enlarged them as a civil rights champion and and certainly when he was president he did that and as you suggested earlier his memoirs were uh, are and were celebrated as both history and literature and so there's lots of prose in recent time and that includes ronald white's biography and ron cherno's biography and charles calhoun's mm -hmm. magnificent volume uh reevaluating uh, Grant as president. It's a, it's a it's like every president. There, it's a mixed bag. I have to say that the cons are still there. They're the pros and the cons, and I think they've to some extent the cons have reemerged. And Ulysses S. Grant mm -hmm. is suffering now the damage uh, that is being done to all all of all of our historical former heroes or figures. Uh, as statues and monuments are being judged and found wanting by current standards. And I think that's that's a problem. And in, especially for Grant, he was a slave owner, accepted the fact that he lived in Missouri among slaveholding people. He was, uh, he has been charged and he did issue an anti-Semitic order during the Civil War. He was awash his uh, his generalship and especially as president awash in corruption. His generalship is still controversial. 
And of course, what something will never go away is, is his use of alcohol. Before we go any further, let's take a moment to talk Lost Cause. Just hold on and suck it. Mommy, here's the scarlet vickles. You can take it all back to the kitchen. I won't need to buy it. Oh, yes, and you is. You was going to eat every mouthful of this. The Lost Cause refers to a revisionist school of history and thought put forward by members of the defeated Confederacy and then their ancestors following the conclusion of the Civil War through to today. This represents a super tangled series of chapters in American thought, but in a nutshell, Lost Cause believers put forward the idea that slavery was a side issue in the Civil War and that it all started as a war of northern aggression. According to those who believe the institution of slavery is hardly as cruel, or was hardly as cruel, as northern abolitionists made it out to be, white southerners who are portrayed as honorable and chivalrous had no choice but to take up arms in the defense of their homes. Lost cause ideology infiltrated the U.S. through history, yes, but also through fiction, film, and a variety of other media. This ideology had a direct effect on the public perception of Ulysses Grant. One immediate goal of this school of thought was to make a hero out of Robert E. Lee, and to do so they had to make a villain out of the one general who decisively defeated him. Lost causers tend to describe Grant as a blundering, drunk butcher who only managed to succeed with the Overland campaign and defeat Robert Lee at Appomattox uh, because they had superior numbers, better resources, better supply, etc., etc. Lost cause belief has had far-reaching ripple effects. For example, many today believe that the North easily won the Civil War. Uh, for example, here is the writer Shelby Foote in an interview in the widely popular Ken Burns PBS series, The Civil War. I think that the North fought that war with one hand behind its back. At the same time the war was going on, the Homestead Act was being passed, all these marvelous inventions were going on. Uh, in the spring of 64, the Harvard-Yale boat races were going on, and not a man in either crew ever volunteered for the Army or the Navy. They didn't need them. Uh, I think that if it had been more Southern successes and a lot more, the North simply would have brought that other arm out from behind its back. Uh, I don't think the South ever had a chance to win that war. This, this subject could be debated forever. Let's just say right now that many experts do dispute this idea. Here's Professor Joan Waugh again. But the, the gist of it was that here you had, and, and General Lee, uh, Robert E. Lee contributed it in his last message to his, his troops after Appomattox, that you were faced with overwhelming numbers and resources. There was no way that, that this, um, this uh, outnumbered, outgunned, everything out-resourced uh, Confederacy was ever going to win the Civil War. But that's not, that's not the reality of the war. That's not the reality of history. And, and that, in, in some ways, Grant addressed that in his memoirs. If you've read them, uh, you, might, mm -hmm. you might note that he says that toward the end. I mean, what, what, is, you know, 
what is this all about? Why did it take four years to win the war if it was, if it was just a matter of numbers? Uh, McClellan had all the numbers going for him in 1861 and 1862, but he, he couldn't win uh, the major battles decisively. And so that is, that is a big part of the lost cause. But together, of course, after Robert E. Lee died, as you might know, Robert E. Lee had a pretty, uh, outwardly, he, he was a model citizen. He supported mm -hmm. reconciliation. Privately, he was angry. Privately, he contributed to the lost cause, not only with the last uh, message he gave to the, the departing soldiers of the Army of the Virginia after they surrendered in 1865, but also in his correspondence with leading lost cause architects, such as Jubal Early. And, and, this, and this was powerful and, and pervasive. It, it was something that they had to do, they felt that they had to do to defend themselves, but, but it, was, it was toxic and it was divisive and it was, I think, largely untrue. There were some truths in it because all ideologies, all ideas, all powerful memory traditions are, are based on some truth. And one is the a truth is that the Confederates fought hard and long and gave it everything they could. They were led in many cases, like the Union Army was led by brave officers, uh, men who thought they were doing the right thing. But but the that would be from their perspective, not from my perspective. I urged uh, in every almost every public venue that I've ever been in. I urge my audience or my students to, to please con put aside your inclination to judge the past by the standards of the present. That to some extent, we can't help doing that and, and learn about history and read widely in American history if you're interested in it. There, there's nothing that I can say to your, I mean, I think you're skirting around the fact that, well, Grant was a loser, he was a failure uh, in everything he did except wartime, and, and it was only, he was only a great general, considered a great general with quotation marks, because he had many more men, and people believe that today, he, and he did have more men, the North had more men, but again, I, I asked, why did it take four years to win the war? Okay, so that's a taste of how the public has perceived and continues to see Grant. But to round off this episode, let's take a look at how historians and biographers parse through the evidence of this man's life and put it all together in a way that we, the public, can understand. Here is Professor Brooks Simpson. I think one of the interesting characteristics of Grant biography is uh, an interest in explaining through speculation why someone operates they do, uh, the way they do. Um, and people have been at this now uh, for over 100 years, uh, more like 150, and they can't really find out that, that, that inner motivation, what makes Grant so shrewd here and uh, so naive there and 
we can speculate all we want as to what were the inner depths that moved Grant in this way. Um, but, you know, we can't even explain that kind of behavior within ourselves when we're attentive to certain things and not to others. At best, that's spitballing. And in terms of, well, I think this or I think that, uh, you know, people at the time, William T. Sherman being classic, I believe Grant is a mystery and he's a mystery even to himself. Uh, these are people who knew Grant and they couldn't figure him out. And these are people who had access to Grant, could talk to Grant, could listen to Grant, and they didn't have access. In some sense, for a biographer to assume, well, I understand these things that no one else understood a hundred and some odd years later, and here's the key to Grant's inner self, that's more or less a, a, an agreement, if you will, with the reader. I'm going to paint a picture, and I hope you buy it. To highlight this, I asked Professor Simpson to walk me through uh, Grant's abolitionist background and his evolving views on slavery and civil rights. Well, Grant grew up, you know, just north of the Howell River and just north of the area where, you know, Uncle Tom's cabin has a vise and her child crossing uh, the Ohio by jumping from uh, a piece of ice to piece of ice. And, and, and certainly uh, slavery was an active issue in uh, Georgetown, Ohio. The town where he grew up. In the 1830s. Again, his father having worked with Owen Brown and having told his son later stories about John Brown. John Brown led the raid and failed slave uprising at Harper's Ferry, West Virginia in 1859. Young Grant's awareness and later on adult Grant's awareness of Brown uh, comes from that experience. Uh, his prep school experience um, at, at uh, John Ripley's Academy, again, a man running an underground railroad stop, uh, means that by the time he goes to West Point in 1839, he's been surrounded by anti-slavery sentiment. But the interesting thing is that Grant rarely confides his inner thoughts to paper. And whether we like it or not, biographers of 19th century figures and earlier uh, figures tend to speculate on what one thought by what one wrote or what one said and was recalled by others. Um, and um, Grant's not a reflective man on this issue. Uh, we are told, for example, and Grant himself in his memoirs makes mention of he thought the Mexican-American War was an unholy war, a war fought on behalf of slavery, and that to some extent the American Civil War was retribution for this transgression. But we don't find that in his correspondence at the time. Uh, Ulysses says Grant, the Mexican-American War was notable in part because it kept him separate, separated from Julia for four years. Um, now in the 1850s, again, marrying to a slaveholding family, knowing very well, by the way, that his father disapproves of that. Um, I mean, this is a, a passive aggressive, but nevertheless noticeable defiance of his father's will in marrying Julia. Uh, when he comes back, to civilian life in 1854, he finds himself farming land given to him by his father-in-law in the grant and in the Dent properties outside of St. Louis. Uh, and uh, that labor includes working alongside slaves who you direct. Um, 
and Grant would also hire out other people's slaves to help him with the work of the land. So Grant's enmeshed with slavery at this time. He doesn't say much about it. We, what we have, in fact, are testimonies offered by neighbors later on that Grant was basically a lousy slave owner in their view. And, and what constitutes a lousy slaveholder, of course, is interesting because he paid his hired workers too much uh, and he was not a, a disciplinarian of any sort, the, no resort to the whip and the like. Uh, so Grant certainly found key components of managing slave labor inherently distasteful, but something he had to put up with. Um, and Grant's known throughout his life for putting up with things and sort of resigning himself to, I have to do work within the world uh, I, I live um, and not try to change it uh, so much. The issue of African-Americans, it's ever become an abstraction form. It's one of the few times he uses the N-word. It's really about African-Americans as an abstraction, uh, not as human beings, um, not in the way that Andrew Johnson would describe, let's say, Frederick Douglass in, in its negative, harsh, and repugnant terms. Um, but obviously, he's not quite the abolitionist that other people now want him to be. Um, if he made remarks at the dinner table, as we hear from one of the Dent slaves, Mary Robinson, that he would free the family if he ever got control of them, he'd free the, the slaves on the Dent plantation. Um, nevertheless, he was willing still to, to tolerate those circumstances, um, even to the point that, although we don't know how Grant acquired a slave that's still shrouded in mystery of a man named William Jones. Um, he then decided to free Jones uh, rather than sell Jones. Uh, that was an interesting choice for someone who could have used the money from a, a prime hand upwards of $1,000 to $1,500 at that time. Um, and then Jones sort of disappears. We, we, we don't hear anything more about him other than that moment. Um, but that he was willing to take ownership even for a short time should give somebody paused as an abolitionist was unlikely to do that. Uh, these slaves that uh, Julia directed, were, it, there's no evidence whatsoever legal title was surrendered to her, in part because that would have put those slaves under Grant's control as well. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of talk between Grant and members of the Dent family or Julia about what, what really is slavery about. Julia has a very romantic view of it, persists in that romantic view of it when she writes her own memoirs. But it's clear when Grant talks to other people after a while that he's watching the world around him again, again, Grant the observer, uh, and begins to think that perhaps, you know, Black people are just like white people. They are motivated by the same sorts of things um, and that given opportunities, uh, they will make as much of those opportunities as white people do. Um, and, and, and so whatever racial prejudices Grant had, and Grant has prejudices in other directions, um, they would seem to have been lightly held, dissolved by experience. But I don't 
you're you're absolutely right because no no one including Ulysses S. Grant thought that his thoughts about certain things in the 1850s were important enough uh, to share in conversations that would be recorded or um, to write them down on paper himself. We know that he just tried to pass over the issue in correspondence with his father, uh, who is more acutely aware of his son's dependence upon slave labor. I, I, you know, I, we can't speculate on whether Grant thought about these issues deeply because Grant rarely gave people an insight into his reasoning or thinking process. Um, he was an intensely private man that way. And so a lot of his decisions have always seemed to be acts that uh, owed more to instinct and intuition than intellect. Well, it, it, yeah, it certainly <clears throat> means that certain speculation can proceed undeterred by actual fact. You know, that's where, you know, the comments about, you know, biographer X makes Grant come alive is really, again, a conversation between the author and the audience uh, of, I'm going to give you a portrait and I hope you buy it. Um, and um, I, I think one good comparison, for example, is battlefield art, which is something that many people who are interested in the Civil War get involved in. Um, would you really want an accurate representation of the battlefield on your living room wall? Even the cyclorama at Gettysburg or the other cyclorama at Atlanta, uh, so we can see these portraits. You, or you can go to Waterloo and look at the cyclorama of uh, Marshall Ney's charge against the Anglo uh, Allied Center. Uh, you really don't want to see dismembered bodies. You don't want people dying. Kurtz and Allison prints were famous in the late 19th century for showing soldiers in, in, in uniforms that came straight from the dry cleaners um, and um, for not showing uh, the brutal uh, horror of war. It's the same thing I think happens with biographers. They go ahead and they come up with an image of Grant that, that they feel comfortable with selling and the reader has to want to buy it. Um, and I think when you're talking about the swinging biography where, where I think you see this collaboration, if you will, between author and audience. And in the 1920s, uh, William uh, E. Woodward wrote a book called Meet General Grant that was thoroughly cynical about Grant in many ways, but that was in the age of debunking um, and thus it looked like he was puncturing an American hero just at a time when that seemed the right thing to do. In 1981, Bill McFeely's uh, portrayal of Grant is one that is gonna resonate with a post-Vietnam generation that's disillusioned about the collapse of the uh, civil rights movement. Um, it doesn't hurt that your own mentor reviews your book in the New York Review of Books, which we sometimes call the New York Review of each other's books, um, uh, and says this is the grant that's right for our time. In a sense, C. Van Woodward, who penned those words, spoke better than he may have known. That was a grant that fit what people wanted to hear. Now we have a resurgence in interest of grant. Um, 
which in some cases gives him his due, especially in terms of his presidency uh, and other issues. But that pendulum may have swung too far uh, the other way, again, because of what I see to be a sort of emotional investment uh, of biographers in their subjects um, and a, a desire to communicate with an audience ready to hear these stories. Uh, and so it's not surprising in the last two decades, most biographies of Grant, with, with only one exception, a rather uh, quixotic volume by Michael Corda, that, that, that by and large, these biographies have the same message. Um, and that, 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 that foundation had already been laid before that, that work of the last two decades. I mean, there's not a lot of change in Grant biography uh, from the Grant books that came out at the beginning of the century, and including Gene Edward Smith's rather massive volume on Grant. There's not a lot of change in the, the arc there between then and, and, and Cherno's book of, in 2017. And, uh, but I, I think we're finding yet another Grant that's appropriate to our generation and what we want to see in our historical figures. And for Grant, I would argue the last 20 years have benefited first from a far more critical view of the Confederacy, the so-called lost cause and the role of slavery in the American Civil War and the importance of emancipation. And also an assessment or reassessment of reconstruction yet again um, that concentrates on the um, impact of white supremacist terrorism uh, and, and the overt racism and finding somebody who, however, uh, you might judge his efforts, at least he was willing to make an effort to try to subdue uh, that sort of violence against African-Americans. So Grant's benefited from this environment uh, just as he suffered under previous environments, especially his presidency, Grant's generalship by the 1960s in the hands of something like Bruce Catton and Grant's earlier life in the hands of Lloyd Lewis. got I thought, pretty fair uh, sympathetic treatment, um, but the uh, presidency took a little longer, the post-1865 career took a little longer to take off. Let, let, let's, you know, look at one little vignette as a way to measure this, all right? Ulysses S. Grant was a slaveholder whose policies towards Native Americans uh, could be described as cultural genocide. All right, in terms of civilizing and Christianizing them. That was like an admirable thing from some points of view, it's certainly better than massacring uh, indigenous uh, peoples, but it's still depriving, stripping them of, of their um, uh, tribal uh, and uh, original identity. Yet Grant's rating as president has gone up. Uh, who's has gone down at the same time at a rather precipitous pace, Andrew Jackson, who again, a slaveholder, and who um, had, you know, an equally controversial um, view towards Native Americans that he himself also thought was humane. Indian removal was to let have Native Americans go somewhere else uh, to live. And, you know, the line between Indian removal and the peace policy and reservation policy is, is, is uh, straighter than one might um, uh, wish it to be. Let's put it that way. Um, and yet one's gone up, one's gone down. 
Um, uh, why? Because on the other hand, Grant is associated with emancipation and for protecting black rights. His uh, Native American policy was not born out of a, uh, an earlier bloody attitude uh, towards Native Americans. Yet still, why do we praise one man and the other man suffers? That's, that's, that's a good if, that's a good question. Uh, Joe Biden's predecessor praised both men in, in idiosyncratic ways, and yet his praise of Andrew Jackson was detrimental while his praise of Ulysses Grant really uh, was set aside or, or laughed because, uh, at because of its uh, uh, naivete about historical uh, narrative. So what do you take of all this? This pendulum had swung. You have to decide the, the extent to which you want to understand these people as people and how much do you want to understand them as mythical heroes? Uh, I mean, you know, let me take a, you know, somebody who poses some of these questions in the same way. Mickey Mantle. Do you want to remember Mickey Mantle, the hero on the ball field? An icon to American youth for decades? Or the Mickey Mantle who was, was a drunk, uh, who did not treat his wife well, he's, Grant doesn't, doesn't have that problem, and, and who, who, who struggled through his entire life with certain demons. Which, which mantle do you want or how do you bring those mantles together? Well, how do you bring all these strings of Grant together so that you understand him? And that means in the end that, that that's your goal, understanding him, not liking him, not disliking him, not admiring him. You will find things to admire. You will find things to question. There are times as a biographer when I, you know, I've shifted, uh, sifted through various documents and, and, and shifted opinions and look and say, gee, why the heck did you do that? That, that's part of the biographer's challenges, to, I think, to, to offer a fair and, shall we say, passionately dispassionate view of our subject. been listening to Ulysses Under Fire. My name is Henry Kronk. Thanks so much for stopping by. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please do subscribe. Even better, leave me a rating and a review. It will really help other people who are interested in finding stuff about Ulysses S. Grant find this podcast. If you want to get in touch with me directly, please send me an email at ulyssesgrantpod at gmail.com. No special characters or anything there, uh, just ulyssesgrantpod at gmail.com. In this episode, you heard interviews I conducted with professors Joan Waugh and Brooks Simpson. Both have written a great deal about Grant. Professor Waugh's book, U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth, traces how we have remembered Grant over the years. This text is one of my main secondary sources for this series. Professor Simpson's book, Ulysses S. Grant, Triumph Over Adversity, is another main secondary source. The work of both scholars is fantastic, and it was a huge honor to be able to interview both. 
Professor Wah and Professor Simpson, thank you so much. Other sources for this episode can be found in the show description. You heard some incidental banjo playing that was recorded by my friend Tom Bryce. Thanks so much, Tom. That's all for now. Take care, be safe, and watch for my next episode, which is coming soon.